Here is God's word, Judges 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosh Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abnum, from Kadesh Napadle, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kashan with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead you to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-of-law in Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanum, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that the Barak, the son of Abnum, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Hergesh Hagoam to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harush Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebor the Canite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber the Canite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jebin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jebin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jebin, king of Canaan. Well done, Wendy. That wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Right. I told Joey when I asked him to uh, get somebody to read the test, text this week, and I said, make sure whoever it is you ask them to say, what is it, Harashef Hagoyim, like make sure they say that over and over again so they can, she did great. Well done, Wendy. Thankful for you. Uh, kids, you're dismissed. Off you go. Don't be so excited about it, okay? It's not so bad in here, you know? I mean, look at all these people. Uh, tonight, again, I uh, just want to highlight that. Guys, um, honestly, this church, Lord willing, we moved here May the 1st, 2009, coming up on nine years in the city. Uh, Restoration Church began March the 28th, 2010, so at the end of this month, we'll celebrate our eighth birthday, and uh, <clears throat> very exciting, we'll have a service for that. But um, things that are healthy give life off of them, and so... We're going to see life come out of Restoration Church. Life's going to come out of Restoration Church, as it were, just as it has in the life of some of 
the, well, I'll stop with that, where that was going. Uh, thank you, Crystal, saying yes, Nathan. Uh, but all that to say this, uh, Restoration Church is going to be a mom at the end of the day today. Isn't that exciting? So the world will not take, rec- will not take notice. It will be a small gathering. There will be a few people. The news cameras will not be there. There will be no newspaper men taking interviews. There will be no people that's going to mark this in some book in history as it relates to the earth. But you know what I'm sure of? The angels will be singing this evening. The formation of another gospel-believing church in the middle of Washington, D.C. for Spanish speakers. So I'm so excited about this. We have been praying for this. There's not often you get to see a church come into existence. So I hope you'll come and join us this evening. I'm going to be preaching, but pray for a translator. So I don't know how to speak Spanish. So uh, let me pray for us, and we will dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Word. Father, I'm mindful Just as Barak requested Deborah to go with him, Lord, so you must go with me as I preach. Ready these people to receive your word. And may we sit in submission to it, knowing it's good for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I love the Bible for a lot of reasons, but uh, one of those reasons is, is because I think one of Christians love the Bible is because God's word has the answers to our deepest desires. Inside of this word, inside the Bible, is the answer to our deepest desires. All of us have desires, many of them, some of them anyway, are at least troubled. And so uh, those desires are answered here. There's a great verse that I love to recite in Jeremiah 6.16 where it says, Stand by the roads and look, uh, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Walk in it and find rest for your souls. This is the ancient path. And we go back there every week at Restoration Church trying to find rest for our souls. Now, you may be thinking, Nathan, this is a strange place to find rest for our souls when we think about tent pegs being driven into people's heads and things of that nature. But nevertheless, hopefully you'll see by the end of our study here today that there is rest for our souls. And so if you're here this morning looking for mercy, you're kind of stuck in a cycle of sin and you don't know how to get out. There's answers here. For things like that. If you're looking for triumphant justice, uh, that is to say that you want to see evil defeated. You want to see people receive the things that they're due and good come as a result. There's answers here. And thirdly, as you heard Catherine say, if you want to see rest, if you want rest, there are answers here in the Word. And so we live in a chaotic world and the Bible has clear answers for all of these things. And we're going to see all three of those things in our passage of mercy and justice and rest. And so that's where we're going to go. Judges, as we know, is the seventh book in the Bible. It tells the true story of when God's people, the Israelites, entered into the land, uh, the land of promise, the, the land that was promised to be given to them. We've been seeing that uh, this book is teaching us what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes and there's no submission to a good authority of a good king. Uh, We've been referring to that as the supremacy of self and what we've been seeing is it doesn't go good. It doesn't go well when we sit in the seat of supremacy on our own. Judges teaches us that a society that seats self at the center only results in chaos Uh, Judges is a kind of R-rated cautionary tale that is meant to warn us against living by the dictates of our own desires. And so life and peace we are found uh, is found in submission to God and his good word. We're here in chapter four in verse five, that's where chapter four and chapter five this morning. Uh, Chapter four gives us the meaning of the events that occur and the fight against Jabin and Sisera. Chapter 5 is what I'm going to call a poetic parallel to that same passage. It gives us a little more detail, more theological interpretation of the events. But nevertheless, it's talking about the same thing. 4 is the narrative, 5 is the kind of song. Those of you that are familiar with Disney movies, right? You see something happen and then there's this sort of song that comes out that kind of reinforces all the events. Well, that's chapter 5. That's the song. So that's what we understand. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through chapter 4 and then we'll kind of refer to chapter 5 to help us understand more what's going on in chapter 4. Chapter 5 to refer to what's going on in chapter 4. So big idea here, the Lord hears cries for mercy. He brings triumphant justice and he brings triumphant justice. It's the big idea, the Lord hears cries for mercy and he brings triumphant justice. Three points, we're going to spend most of our time in that second point. Here's the first one, the Lord hears cries for mercy. The Lord hears cries for mercy. 
Uh, if you've been with us through this series, uh, you should look at that verse there in chapter 4, verse 1, and it should look familiar to you. We've seen this before. Take a look down and you'll see it again in chapter 6, verse 1. We'll look at it next week. Same idea. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now remember back in chapter 2, remember that was the overview of the book, and there we saw that cycle that would repeat itself throughout the book. Namely, that Israel disobeys, God then brings destruction as a result, Israel then cries out in distress for God to come, God then sends a deliverer in mercy, uh, and only to have them forget. And so each time they run through this cycle, things get a little bit more difficult. Uh, things get worse. You're going to notice that transition by the time it's going to be super clear. You think it's bad now. Wait till we get to the end. This cycle is just going to go worse and worse as each cycle goes through. So here we learn of Israel's disobedience yet again. God in his infinite justice sells them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Sisera was the military commander of Jabin's army. We find that Sisera had some uh, in his possession some 900 iron chariots. We've seen these iron chariots before. These are big technological advances. And so Sisera was a very powerful man with a very powerful army. And so how did he use his power? Well, take a look. We learn there that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. That's how he used his power. He oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And guys, this is the punishment that God gives to his people. Remember, the Lord warned them that this was going to happen in advance, that if they forsake his love and worship other gods, this is what would happen. And true to his word, the Lord does it. He hands them over. And let me give you a little bit of an idea of how cruel this oppression was by Sisera. Uh, So we find this is happening again for 20 years. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 30. There's the kind of song. Flip over there and you'll see you get an idea of the cruelty of the leadership of Sisera and Jabin. Remember, this is the poetic recounting of Sisera, uh, and of, of, sorry, of what happened in the events against Sisera. And in chapter 5, verse 30, we get this rendering of Sisera's mother. Okay, and she's talking. This is at the other end of the battle, and she's wondering where her son is. She's used to seeing her son come back from the battles, and these things happen. And what does she say? In chapter 5, verse 30, she says, Have they not found and divided the spoil? So she's wondering where he's at. He hasn't come back. Have they not found and divided the spoil? She says. And what is the spoil? In chapter 5, verse 30. A womb or two for every man. So it seems that the practice of Sisera and his army is to defeat people and then rape their women. This is typical of the Canaanites. That's why the Lord wants Israel to wipe these guys out. If you go back and read Leviticus chapter 18, you can see the the sexual practices of the Canaanites, and it's just awful. It's just awful. So Sisera is the kind of guy we want to see come to justice, right? We want to see this guy come to justice. Don't worry, he will, as you heard. But this orients us, this orients us to the two-decade-long oppression of this evil man. Israel is in a bad way. And things are not just bad, guys. They're terrible. They're awful. And again, why did it come to this? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Why did it come to this? Because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. In other words, this oppression that they are experiencing is a result of their own choices. They wanted to worship other gods, and then the one true God said, fine, go ahead, live how you please. And what they found is, is what prior and subsequent generations would never seem to learn. Namely, that life away from God is not nearly as good as it seems. It only results, ultimately, in cruel, slave-like oppression. And this is important for us to recognize, guys, because the evil one only wants us, or the evil one only wants to highlight the good parts of us walking away from God, not sitting in submission to Him, not submitting, sitting in submission to His Word. He only wants to highlight the good things. He will not truly ever make you aware of the cost, the long-term cost of walking away from His love. The cost of idolatry may pay short-term reward, but it will return long-term pain. These Israelites testify to that. 
And yet they never seem to understand this as they give themselves to this cycle over and over again. And again, maybe some of you are here this morning and you're saying, amen, I know something about this cycle. I'm in a kind of cycle myself. You know what it's like to be stuck in a cycle of bad decisions. You've made one bad choice that led to another bad choice that maybe led to a lifestyle riddled by bad choices and a lot of regrets. You know what cruel slave-like oppression is apart from God. And you're here and you don't know what to do to get out of it. Could be alcohol. Could be pornography. Could be materialism. Could be some kind of abusive relationship. Uh, There's other kinds as well. We can think of other kind of false gods that are around us. And the tragedy that comes as a result of them. We can think about the gods or the idols of jobs. The idols of other kind of relationships. uh, or, Or just the kind of idol of something that we think will complete us and make life better. And so for you, it may be a kind of cycle of choices or poor choices on more subtle things. Like believing day after day that if this circumstance could just change, then that circumstance would then change, only to find that once they do, nothing really changes. And you're a bit hopeless yourself, wondering what to do, where to go. Or maybe you've spurned the Lord by thinking that, you know, I'll just move to Washington, D.C., and then once I do, I'll, I'll be complete because I'll get that dream job. And after I get that dream job, it'll be just right. And you found that that's not the case. That dream job's not nearly as good as you thought it was. Or maybe for you, you thought that if you just got married, it'd all be good. Maybe if I just have got married and then had some kids, then all would be well. And I would find peace and happiness. And while you're not unhappy that you're married, while you're not unhappy that you have children, you're beginning to be convinced that these things won't complete you. They won't complete you. And this leaves you feeling a bit hopeless. And you feel as though you're under some kind of maybe cruel oppression of disappointment because of misplaced affections. See, all of us, I think, are tempted. All of us are tempted by things that can lead us into cycles of sin due to false worship. And while we may not be like the Israelites here under cruel physical oppressors, most of us know what it's like to feel like we're under cruel oppression of some other sort of poor decisions. We can identify that with that. And so the question is, how do we get out? How do we get out of these kind of cycle of poor choices that we make, this kind of cruel oppression that we often feel day to day? How do we get out of this? Well, the answer is right there in the text. You cry out to the Lord for mercy. You cry out to the Lord for mercy. Look at verse 3. That's what they do there. They cried out to the Lord for help. And I want you to notice what comes next there. Notice the next word there in the text is for. Three little letters. And that's those, that next word for and what comes after is important. Why is it important? Because it tells you, it gives you the reason for their cry for mercy. 900 iron chariots and the cruel oppression that comes, it illustrates that the Israelites recognize they can't deliver themselves. They've come to the realization they cannot deliver themselves. Their false gods can't deliver them. They can't deliver themselves. And so they call out to the one that is proven to deliver them time and again. Proven to deliver them from oppression. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The one that delivered them out of Egypt when they were in slave-like oppression there. It's not slave-like. It was slavery. They're calling out to that one. He has a proven record of Uh, pulling people out by mercy from oppression. So you see, friends, one of the reasons I think so many of us are stuck in cycles of sin is because we haven't gotten to this place. We haven't gotten to this place. We don't or you don't cry to the Lord for mercy because you haven't recognized you can't overcome the 900 chariots that are in front of you. You haven't gotten there yet. You still think that this or that can be overcome by some other kind of deliverer. God is not a meaningful part of your equation of deliverance because your hope is in something or someone else to deliver you. But friend, you need to know that you will never get true deliverance from cruel masters, be they real ones or the cruel master of your own heart until you recognize, most fundamentally, you cannot deliver yourself. Or that person or that thing cannot deliver you either. Ultimately, you have to get to a point of seeing your need. And crying out to the only one that can deliver. God is a God of mercy. Israel had forgotten that time and again. But they eventually knew it. 
They neglected him time and again. They would get comfortable. They would forget about him. And then things got tough and they would remember, oh yeah, he's the one that always delivers us when things are hard. So may we remember him. You and I have to understand that our greatest enemies are never managed. They can only be delivered by a powerful, merciful God who loves to give mercy to the undeserved. Lord, the Lord hears our cries for mercy. And look how he does it. Second point, the Lord gives triumphant justice. The Lord gives triumphant justice. And we've seen this before. We'll see it again. Israel spurns the love of God, whores itself after other gods. When it gets tough, they ask the God that cheated on them, sorry, the God that they cheated on uh, to get them out. They ask him to help them. They've cheated on him. Things get tough and then they ask to get out of it. Now, if, uh, if you were in this position and they asked you for help and you were the one that was cheated on, you'd probably be like me. Say, no, deal with it yourself. You got yourself into this. You get yourself out. But that's not what the Lord does. The Lord could have done that. He would have been just to have done that. But that's not what he does. He could not help himself. This is what we love about God so much. He is so full of love and mercy, he responds to his wayward people. And by mercy, he delivers justice on the one hand to the cruel oppressors, and he brings victory and eventually rest to his people. But they deserve none of it. And notice how he does it. Like so often he does, he brings justice and triumph in ways that the opposition would not expect. Enter Deborah. Deborah, we see in verse 4, is a prophetess and a judge. To be a prophet, you must speak the words of God. And most notably, those words, in particular, when you're talking about things that are going to come in the future, those words of prophecy have to be right. And if you get those words of prophecy wrong, Deuteronomy 18 says that you are now under the penalty of death. She's speaking the words of God, and as we will see later, she gets the truth. She gets the prophecy right, which is why I think they stuck that word prophetess in there. She makes a prediction in the name of God, and it comes true. But also, Deborah is a judge. We've been introduced to judges in the last couple weeks, but Deborah has some unique things about her ministry that set her apart from the other judges in this book. But one of those things is there in verse 5. We actually see her settling internal disputes of Israel. Now, none of the other judges are seen to be doing this. All the other judges in the book are delivering them from the external uh, problems, the external enemies. Uh, and yet Deborah will not actually be the deliverer. She's unique in this. She's not actually going to be the deliverer. We're going to find that Barak is going to be raised up for that. But here, Deborah is doing what judges were told to do in Deuteronomy 17. They settle internal b- disputes. Now, we've got to remember, using modern-day language, uh, church and state in Israel are combined. They're into one. Israel is establishing a theocracy. And so these are no longer the plans of God for us in Christ today. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. He's not trying to establish a theocracy today because of the work of Christ. But back then, this is before, long before the time of Christ. And so God now is setting up a uh, time, a place, a nation state where government and religion are together. That's what the old covenant is doing, establishing a nation state. And so what we see uh, Deborah doing there as a judge is similar to what you would see a judge doing today. Settling uh, all kinds of cases of homicide or disputation between two people, legal rights, those kinds of things. She's settling those. People are coming to her. She's settling those uh, disputes. And so needless to say, Deborah is a busy lady. A super busy lady. Not to mention, she's married to our pal Lipidoff, right? Busy woman, Deborah is. This is an impressive woman. And a very, very impressive woman. God is going to use Deborah to help facilitate his purposes. And as we will see in a moment, God is going to use another woman to facilitate his purposes in Jael. A woman who will get glory, it says, through her delivering justice to Sisera there in verse 9. And guys, I believe that this is all a very deliberate choice of the Lord. Like we have seen and will see again, God uses all kinds of people to bring about his good purposes. Now, most of us, most of us are not surprised, but I realize that some of you may be surprised that God would use a woman in such an important position as this for his purposes. Maybe you've heard that the God of the Bible has either a low view of women or maybe a lower view of women. But friend, that is simply not the case. 
It's simply not the case. Deborah joins a chorus of other women used of God in the Old Testament. Women like Rahab, women like Lydia, women like Ruth, who courageously provides for her family and preserves the line of Christ. Of course, in the New Testament, we know the stories of Mary and Elizabeth and Priscilla and Phoebe and Lydia, whom God used to help start a church. So what we find is in the Bible is that women are powerful forces in the kingdom of God because, as Christians have always believed, women have equal value, equal dignity in the sight of God. Therefore, they should be used of God. Something unprecedented, by the way, in other pieces of literature from antiquity. And so anyone that has opened up a Bible and said women are of less value or should be treated with less value, they have misrepresented the character of God and they are not fit to teach the Bible. The Bible commands us to honor women. But like we still see today, the Canaanites, they clearly thought less of women. So we've clearly considered Sisera's debauchery towards women. And so you can only imagine what they thought of being defeated by a woman. We learn later in Judges chapter 9 where a wicked guy by the name of Abimelech, he feels shame for having been killed by a woman. So needless to say, the Canaanites thought very little of women. But the God of the Bible, friends, is again, is the very opposite. As a sign of his glory, he takes the people that the Canaanites disdain and abuse, and he gladly uses them to bring about victory and justice. Showing that his plans and his might are better than the barbaric foolishness of the world. Now, let me address what may be the kind of elephant in the room. So there have been some that take the ministry of Deborah to Uh, as prophet and judge, where we can use her to kind of build a case for female pastors. But friends, there's about four or five reasons why I think that's a bad idea to do. Uh, I'll give you a couple. First off, this passage is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. In other words, this passage is describing events. It's not trying to tell us how to order the church. So there are other passages that speak directly to those things, so we should let those passages dictate our understanding of how to order the church. Passages like 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, which are grounded in Genesis 2. But secondly, I think most notably why we should not use Deborah as a case to kind of uh, understand female pastors is Deborah doesn't see herself as the deliverer of Israel. But instead, she sees herself as a mother, a godly, good, delivering mother of sorts. You can see that in chapter 5 or 7. Those are her own words. But nevertheless, these things should not distract us from the impressiveness of this godly woman. Deborah is and should be held in high esteem within the church. We should use her like so many others in the Bible to show the value, the worth, and the impact that women can have on the kingdom of God. And that should not detract from our biblical understanding of gender roles. All of these things work together for the glory of God and the good of His people in the church. So back to the story. Look at verse 6. Down there through 6 down to 9, we see Deborah, she commissions Barak to lead God's people to bring justice to the wicked people of Canaan. We see there in verse 6 that the Lord God of Israel has commanded this. Barak, wise man that he is, is not willing to go to battle uh, without that godly woman Deborah at his side. Commentators sort of differ. Is he being disobedient by not going or whatever the case may be? I think he was pretty smart to bring Deborah along. I would have to. Um, so verse 9, thankfully, Deborah does agree to go with Barak. But as we have referenced before, she informs him that the glory of the defeat of the person of Sisera is going to go to a woman. Uh, that will lead us to the story of Jael in just a moment. But here we have the battle scene. Barak takes 10,000 people from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun to go battle against Sisera and the Canaanites. But curiously, we find in that poetic parallel, there are some folks that are left out in the battle. We learn in that poetic parallel in chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, uh, that at least the person or the tribes of Dan and Asher sat still. Maybe Reuben as well. In other words... They were, those other tribes, they were expected to fight and bring justice to the wicked people of Canaan, but instead they stayed home. And as a result, we get that curse in chapter 5, verse 23. Miraz, the curse of Miraz. Miraz was a city in the northern part of the kingdom, which is where all those tribes would have been situated. Close to Dan, close to Asher. 
And so we get that, tr- that curse. Verse 23, curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord only shows up in really important times. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Why? Because they did not come to help, to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now to be clear, as you will see in a moment, the Lord doesn't need our help or their help, but the curse comes upon Miraz because they were more interested in their own comfort than they were in obeying the Lord's commands, helping their family, as it were. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, and what was right in their own eyes, as so often is, is being passive, not accepting the responsibility that they had as God-covenanted people. They stay at home while their family risks their lives to take down wickedness. And so let me pause here for a moment because I think this is an appropriate application for us. We live in America, a place ripe with benefits, a place where it certainly is getting harder to live a consistent Christian life. However, it's still largely accepted to be a Christian here. Uh, you, You don't have to pay a great cost to call yourself a follower of Christ. So it's easy for us, isn't it, to be like Dan and Asher and stay at home when our church family is out risking their lives for the sake of Christ. It's easy to do that. And by the way, I don't mean by that risking their lives necessarily by uh, doing work in Iraq or something. I mean here in the city. It's easy for us just to stay home. I, I, I see it, I think, more and more as people get older in their life. They find that it's easier just to settle into life. Find things a little more comfortable. Their comfort becomes more a priority than Christ and His people. Because I've had friends with members of this church that have Talk to me about how they have invited people into discipling relationships where those people have told them no out of disinterest. And of course, we all know the story of older churches that have that unbiblical 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the church doing 80% of the work. Now, let me say this very clearly. That is not the story of this church. That has not been the story of this church. This church has been so good at serving one another. Most everybody serving in each other. I thank God for that. But we can see it creep in, right? The older we get as a church, we can see it creep in. I know, guys, that you are busy people. We live in a busy city. right? Many of you came to us. Uh, many of you came to us, or maybe even are now, single, without a job. Remember what those of you that were in college and now you're with us, you're like, yeah, now you're realizing, yeah, I actually had a lot more time in college. right? But you came to a single uh, in college, without a spouse, without kids. Now you have a job and a spouse and maybe with kids. And so you're realizing you've got very little time. I get all of that. I get all of that. Those things are not only priorities. Those are biblical priorities that you should be giving yourselves to. But listen, we can't keep our eye. We can't get our eye off the ball. We've got to still love each other and serve each other. Serve this city. We've got to find ways to do that and not sit at home like these guys did. While other people are out serving God's people. Risking their lives, loving God, loving neighbor. We've got to serve each other, all of us in our own way, pulling the rope together. Let it not be said of us that we have not pursued Christ and we've pursued our own comfort. Let it not be said of us that that is the case. Now to be clear, that curse in chapter 5, verse 23 is not a threat to us. It's not a threat, right? We know as Christians, Christ became a curse for us. There's no curse on us. But it is a warning. God saves individuals, but He never intends to keep those individuals from one another. He made us for Him and for one another. And we will only make a meaningful difference in this community among the people that live around here the more that we love each other and serve one another. All of us doing our part. Not sitting on the bench. Not letting the other people do it. So it's going to take us all. Regardless, though, of the passivity of these tribes... Some of these tribes, the Lord does bring justice to the Canaanites. He takes them down. So Sarah brings out all 900 iron chariots, just as the Lord said through Deborah in verse 7. They come out to the river Kishon. And once again, we get more details of this battle in that poetic parallel. So apparently the way these 900 iron chariots and the army that accompanied them were defeated was something similar to what we saw in the Egyptian army being swept away by the Red Sea. Look over at chapter 5, verse 4. You'll notice there that in the battle that the, quote, heavens dropped. Yes, they 
yes, the clouds dropped water. So apparently a lot of rain's coming down. Slide down to chapter 5, verse 21. It says, quote, the torrent Kishon, that's the river, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So apparently the way Barak defeated the Canaanites was with the help of some torrential rains that caused the Kishon River to overflow and sweep away the Canaanites. Now remember the whole thing, right, was the 900 iron chariots. Well, the water mitigated the strategic advantage of those chariots. And as we read at the back end of chapter 4, verse 16, not a man was left as a result. Save one, which we'll come to in a moment. But justice has been served to these wicked people. Barak, with Deborah at his side, defeats Jabin's army. But guys, don't miss this. This is so important. If you tuned out, tune back in. This is the hinge on this whole passage. Don't miss who did all of this. Don't miss who did all of this. Don't miss the true hero of this passage. In verse 14, we learn that the Lord went out before Barak. And in verse 15, we get the linchpin to this passage. Here it is. And the who? The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak. Slide over to chapter 5, verse 2. In the poetic parallel, we see there the leaders took the lead in Israel. The people offered themselves willingly. So bless the leaders? Is that what it says? No. Bless the what? Lord. Verse 3. Hero kings give hero princes to the Lord. I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. The Lord. Verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. And so, friends, the triumphant justice that is served to these wicked Canaanites was by the Lord. The Lord did this. This is his victory because he brought it out. And the Israelites were the means of his bringing the justice upon those evil Canaanites. But God was the one behind it all. He was the one behind it all. And so, guys, let me just make a quick aside here. This is why we need the Bible. This is why we need the Bible. The historical record behind the text is not our God. It's the Lord's interpretation of those historical events that is our God. You get that distinction? So important to understand. It's not the historical record behind the text that is our God. It's the text. It's the meaning. I've told this story so many times. My my professor in seminary is so helpful. Father, son, walking through the parted Red Sea. Son looks to the father and says, what does all this mean? And the father says, I don't know. We've got to wait for the book. That's why we need the Bible. Being in those historical experiences will not give us more illumination. We have what we need right here. Because here, listen, here's what would happen. Had the New York Times been at the Battle of Kishon, right? what they would have told you rightfully would be that uh, Barak came down from the hill, these 10,000 warriors came down, wiped them out, all that stuff. The New York Times would have properly talked about the rain and all these other things, but the New York Times would not told you about how the Lord was behind it all. They can't see that. The Bible gives us the meaningful interpretation. God's word tells us the meaning of the historical events. And here we find that God was in the rain. And he was in the hands and the fingers of Barak and his army. The Lord, guys, don't miss this. So important. Where's God at? The Lord is doing thousands upon thousands of things in our lives and in our world. We might be aware of two or three or four of them. He's at work. All around us. He's bringing triumphant justice to the world. He's bringing triumphant justice in our own lives. Guys, we may read tomorrow that some wicked leader or regime was taken down. And it may just be that the Lord was in that. We don't know for sure, but it may be. Bringing justice to wickedness. But don't we believe, beloved, don't we believe that God is sovereign in the world? Don't we believe that He's providentially acting? And so therefore, Christian, listen, don't put your sort of sacred glasses on when you come to church and then you take those sacred glasses off and pick up your secular glasses to read the New York Times. You know, I like to say very, I said I wasn't going to say it, I'm going to say it. You know, we got to put, we got to put our gospel goggles on all the time. Right? It's so silly, but you'll remember it. You know, we got to see the world that God is at work for his purposes. We're not going to see it all. We need the Bible to give us the information so we know it's happening. 
And he does, we see in this passage, he does take down wickedness and he does bring about triumphant justice mercifully. And so friend, if you want to see evil dealt with, if you're not a Christian and you're sort of weighing out this Christian faith and you want to see evil dealt with, take a look at the God of the Bible. Your interest in justice comes from him. You were made in his image and he hates evil and he's doing something about it. God is not passive. We see that in this passage. He, he cares about evil. He's bringing justice. And no, surely, it may not be in the time or in the way that you would like. But we can be sure that it is an undeniable reality that God is at work to bring evil down and bring up righteousness and justice. I think this is most clear in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, we see God in its totality dealing with evil and striking a blow to it. Where God sends His only Son to deal with my evil and your evil. Right there we see Him at work. He will not, God will not compromise on His wholeness. He has done something about it in history. Uh, And not only has He done something about it in history in Judges, not only has He done something about it at the cross, the Bible teaches us that Christ will return and finally deal once and for all with the wickedness of the earth. He will make it right. And so, friend, your desires for mercy, your desires for triumphant justice, they come together in the God of the Bible. They come together in the gospel. One more story to illustrate that point. This is the one you've been waiting on. So we've documented the cruel and misogynistic evil of Sisera and his army. And so it is only right that the Lord, by his grace, take the strength of a shrewd woman named Jael to take him down. Jael, we see, is the wife of Heber, who was a Canaanite. Now, if you were to look back in Judges 1.16, you can write this down, go back and look at it later. If you were to look back in Judges 1.16, the Kenites are friends of the Israelites because they are the family of Moses' father-in-law. Okay? So the Kenites are a clan of the Moabites, and the Moabites are known to oppose Israel. And yet again, because of the relationship of the Kenites to Moses, they are friends to Israel. This clan is friends to Israel. And so as a quick aside, guys, this shows us yet again that this conquest in the land is not about genocide. Since we have these outward sort of clans named the Kenites that are being used by God in the land. Not genocide. God's bringing justice to the evil Canaanites. But Heber and Jael providentially separated from the rest of the Kenites. They had an agreement with the guys up there in the Canaanites. They providentially separate from the rest of the Kenites, and they're living up here. Providentially, guess where they're living? Right next to the river Kishon. Acts 17.26. Guys, go back and read that later. God knows exactly where you're living and what times and spaces you're living in. Regardless, though, the battle is happening. Sisera jumps off his chariot. Why would he jump off his iron chariot? I think it's because of that... It's all muddy. He can't get around. He knows the battle's lost. And coward that he is, he takes off. And as he's taking off, he knows the day is lost. And as he's running away, there we find, uh, and remember, I should say, Deborah's prophecy. Remember, Barak will not get the glory over Sisera. Remember that? But Barak is chasing him. So right now we're going, "Uh uh-oh, is is Deborah's prophecy going to come true? Well, Jael steps out of her tent, waves Jael over, or sorry, waves Sisera over, and convinces him to come and take refuge in the tent. And he does. Sisera runs in there. He's tired. He's scared. He comes into the tent. And he asks for water from Jael. But interestingly, we get this detail. She gives him milk. Why would that be in the Bible? Well, if you were to take a look in 525, chapter 525, we could see that it contained, the milk contained curds. Kind of gross. But nevertheless, I think what's happening here, sort of my allusion to this passage, she gives him Milk with curds instead of water because she wants him to fall asleep. And that's just what he does. And at that time, we get this gory detail where as he falls asleep, Jael drives a stake through his head. It's pretty gruesome, isn't it? Well, if you're wrestling with the ethics of all of this as I have this week, I'd take you back to the beginning of this book when we find another Canaanite leader named Bezek is captured and they cut off his thumbs and his toes and another gruesome way now he eventually dies of other things but we know that this is a gruesome thing to do right we look at that and know that it's gruesome that cutting off 
uh, thumbs and toes and things like this. But if you were to look in chapter 1, verse 7, you'd see that Bezek knows he's getting the justice of God and agrees to it because he did the same thing to 70 other kings. And I think that's set at the right front end of the book in order to help us orient to these other guys like Eglon last week, right? The left-handed man and all the stuff that happened in the porta potty right? All these things happen. But they're done so as to show us these people, these kings are having things done to them because they deserve them. They're getting justice, as it were. So, so many of you are familiar with that teaching, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What all that means is, is there should be a correct administration of a punishment for the crime. And that's what the Bible seems to be indicating about these wicked Canaanites. Sisera had a brutal death. And that punishment fits the crime. Because this is the effect of a broken world that is trying to bring justice so that peace would come to the world. And so in the end, friends, Sisera's sins found him out and the Lord repaid him for his wicked ways. And I think, I think that it is the justice of God that he used a woman to do it. We have every reason to believe that Sisera, or at least Sisera himself, or at least his army, they condone the use of a lot of women, uh, of, of abusing a lot of women. And so God uses women to enact his triumphant justice. I want to be clear here, guys. We are not under the old covenant anymore. Christians do not understand that we are to be the vessels of God's justice or his wrath anymore. Romans twelve nineteen makes this perfectly clear. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Under the new covenant, the state is given the power of the sword. We see that right after that passage in Romans 13. The state has the power of the sword, not the church. Meaning just governments are to do sort of like the stuff we're seeing here in this passage of Judges. They're to take down the bad guys. It's our role, since Christ has fulfilled all uh, righteousness as Christians, it's our role to love our enemies. To do good to them. Because, why? We remember that we were enemies. And God loved us. We leave it upon the wrath of God to take care of those things. It is not in our hands. And that's where I want to leave us. I want to leave us on the other side of justice being administrated. Thirdly, finally, briefly, the Lord gives rest. The Lord gives rest. After all of this poetic justice, we get this synopsis at the end of the chapter. In chapter 5, verse 31. After recounting what has happened to Sisera, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Now, every time we see rest in the Bible, it's meant to echo the original rest that the Lord took on the seventh day of creation, where God is not tired. He doesn't need to take rest in that way. So what is his rest on that seventh day of creation? When God rested, what he does is he steps back from his beautiful creation and he looks at it and he says, it is very good. He enjoyed the land that he had made. That's what our rest is is contained, that we're supposed to have every seventh day on this day. Justice has been served. The world is right, just as it's supposed to be. Shalom, peace marks the world. And that's what's happening here. God had dealt with Jabin and Sisera through Deborah and Barak and Jael after God's people had remembered the Lord. They called out to Him for mercy. And on the other side of this merciful, triumphant justice over evil, God's friends are like the sun. Rise in their might. Rest then, not restlessness. Rest marks the land because they trusted in the Lord. They trusted in the Lord. They called out to Him and they trusted in Him. And all of this, guys, is meant to point us to the true and forever deliverer, Jesus Christ the Lord. This little pattern of of disobedience that leads to destruction, that leads to distress, that leads to God sending a deliverer, which then leads to rest, it all points to Jesus. This is not some sort of you know, hermeneutical gymnastics that I'm doing up here to try to get to Jesus. This is the way Jesus read his Bible. He understands that this 
text right here points to him. You can go back, read John 5.39. You can see that. Check me on that. Luke 24. Other passages point to him. And so how does it point to him? It points to him that Christ is the true deliverer. That all these deliverers, you'll see them time and again. They only give peace, rest for a certain time. And the people keep on disobeying, just like us. God in his infinite mercy says, once and for always, I will strike a death blow to the sinfulness of humanity. I will send my son to live a sinless life and to take the death of those sinners that repent and believe on him, paying their curse, paying their payment for their sin once and for always because he was fully God and fully man being buried. And on the third day, overcoming of sin and death, life forever. And so we know that when we trust, we believe in him, a day is going to come just as he said it would when we have rest now, don't we? Those of us that know and trust Jesus and believe in Jesus, we have a bit of rest now, don't we? We know this. Even in the midst of turmoil, we can say, Christ is my reward. I'm going to get home soon enough, and I, but I can have rest now. And we know a day is going to come, as I've said before, where he will return and he will make it all right. And the land that will have rest is not just a little piece of real estate in the Middle East. It'll be the whole world. And the whole world will have rest and the whole world will be right, just as we all want it to be. Christ is the only hope for that. We're not. He is. This passage is meant to show us that. And so, Christian, let me speak to you for a moment. You need to make sure and enter the rest of your redemption every day. We spend so much time, don't we, trying to create rest for ourselves apart from looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Learn to daily crucify your own desires. Take up Christ. Look to your reward and have hope in heaven. Remember your rest is secured there. And soon enough you'll get to enjoy it in all of its fullness. That rest, you'll get to have it once and for always. Triumphant justice has and will be served in Christ. And so call out to him, cry out to him daily for mercy and enter daily the rest of your redemption. And know that you can enjoy pieces, tastes of it now. And those are all appetizers for the rest that will mark this land once and for always when Christ returns. The true deliverer, the great judge, Christ the Lord. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, we cry for mercy. So many of us are stuck in cycles of sin, analogous to the Israelites. So we cry for mercy. And how good it is to know that you answer. We see that here in Judges. We see it at the cross. And because of that, we can have confidence that you will bring it about on a day soon. So God, help us to rest in you. For those that are not believing, God, may they come to believe and find rest in Jesus, the great deliverer. And may they hope in heaven as well. We love you, God, and we thank you that you hate evil and that we can call out to you and know that justice can be served and rest can finally be had. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.